Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of our two-part episode about tales. Now, last time we talked about many of the wonderful biological mysteries of tales, about the the unsettled science of uh, courtship tales uh, and the role they play in peafowl mating. Mm -hmm. We talked about propulsion. We talked about prehensile tales, climbing climbing and anchoring, kangaroos using their tails as... uh, as, as, uh, what uh, to, to become the rock'em sock'em robots that kangaroos are? <laughs> they uh, they lean back on those wonderful stumpy things. Talked about energy conservation, fat storage, but today we're going to talk about biological methods of communication through tails, uh, tails in in self mutilation for survival, and the question of human tails. Yes, where are they? Are where'd they go? Are we going to get them back? Yes. Perhaps when the world is is perfect, uh, we'll grow that that uh, new utopian tale. We'll get to that too. So one of the first things that we should address is the role of tails in animal communication. I remember we mentioned in the Echo Borg podcast that much of human communication is nonverbal. It's one of the reasons it's so easy to be misinterpreted over email or in a text message. Your tone, your facial expressions, and your body language supply sort of the shadow grammar of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And for dogs, the tail can do a lot of this work. In fact, it, it might be especially important for dogs because dogs don't have language. They can't speak. They might be able to communicate something roughly through barks and, and other vocalizations. But but the tail is where it's at. And you know this. Like some of these things you, you already know by heart. Dogs tuck their tails between their legs to show submissiveness. Right. Uh, that's pretty obvious and widely accepted. You could even compare this tail tucking to closed body language in humans. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, yeah. So sort of even without the tail, we kind of assume that posture, this, this sort of, uh, you know, Passive, uh, helpful brontosaurus uh, kind of uh, uh, positioning you can take. Yeah, or if we're if we're feeling uh, apprehensive, we can fold our arms and kind of shrink mm-hmm. the way you you would when a dog tucks its tail and gets low. Uh, and we we think that dogs wag their tails to show they're happy. This is sometimes the case, but not always. I read an interesting National Geographic article that talked to an Oregon State University animal sciences professor named Monique Udell. And according to this article, uh, dogs signal playfulness with a circular, kind of wild circling wag. Mm-hmm. But they can also signal apprehensiveness, too, by uh, showing a slower, more controlled wag. That might be the case in general, uh, but some research shows it gets even more specific with what dogs communicate by their wags. And I want to talk about a couple of interesting papers in uh, current biology on dog tail wagging. So if you have a dog at home, next time it starts to wag its tail... Look at the directional amplitude of tail wagging. And I do want to throw in, you yourself are a dog owner, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you? No. No? No dog? No, no. uh, I just have one horrible cat right now. (laughs) Um, And I've never really been a dog person. But I I, I know that some people new to the... Either new to the show or who are used to uh, you know previous uh, host arrangements, um, you know, may not be familiar that we now have uh, dog owners, dog people on the podcast. Right. Well, I have one dog. Uh, My wife Rachel and I have a dog named Charles Darwin, Charlie, (laughs) and I have not yet tried to track Charlie's uh, asymmetric tail wagging, which I'm about to get into, but I I plan on doing that for the rest of the week. (laughs) Anyway, there was a paper in March 2007 
called Asymmetric Tail Wagging Responses by Dogs to Different Emotive Stimuli. And this, like I said, was in current biology. And here a group of researchers discovered what they called, quote, differential amplitudes of tail wagging to the left or the right side associated with the type of visual stimulus the animals were looking at. So what this means is depending on how you visually stimulated the dog, what you show a dog, Mm -hmm. it would tend to wag to the right or to the left. Now, the tail, if you're picturing how a dog's tail wags, it goes both ways. It wags back and forth, but the amplitude varies. So as it goes back and forth, it might trend more to the left or trend more to the right. Huh. I've never noticed that before. Yeah. And so the experimenters put each dog in a special no distractions box <laughs> that didn't allow it to look at anything else interesting. And it had one opening that the dog's uh, could see through and it would allow them to see things in one direction. And the visual stimuli they tested were the dog's owner and then an unknown person, stranger danger, uh-huh. and then a dominant unfamiliar dog. So this is a dog that has been trained to, to be the boss mm-hmm. and kind of scary. And then a cat. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a control of a blank panel. And there were very interesting results. When they observed the dogs in these conditions, they found that when the dogs looked at their owners, they showed a strong right-side wag bias. Uh, and the unfamiliar human got less wagging and a weaker right-side bias. The cat got much less wagging and a very, very slight right-side bias. The unfamiliar dominant dog got a left-side bias. Hmm. And then the blank control also got a slight left-side wag bias. And the interpretation of these results actually had to do with brain lateralization, uh, possibly in anticipation of motor control. They said, quote, in our experiment, stimuli that could be expected to elicit approach tendencies, so the dog wanting to approach, such as seeing the dog's owner, were associated with higher amplitude of tail wagging movements to the right side, left brain activation, and stimuli that could be expected to elicit withdrawal tendencies, such as seeing a dominant, unfamiliar dog, were associated with higher amplitude of tail wagging movements to the left side, and they thought this meant right brain activation. So in the study, we learned something about how the lateral bias of a tail wag indicates the mindset of a dog, but the big question is, do other dogs notice this? Hmm. Yeah, like is it... I mean, it would seem like they, they would. I mean, just based on what we've studied about, uh, you know, human micro expressions and whatnot, so many things that are, that we end up picking up, uh, either consciously or subconsciously as we're observing another person's body language. Mm-hmm. And we found out the dogs totally do notice this. Mm-hmm. So the, the same authors of the 2007 study, three of them were also authors on a November 2013 study in current biology called Seeing left or right asymmetric tail wagging produces different emotional responses in dogs. So this is dogs looking at video of another dog wagging its tail to the left or right. Or uh, also a frozen no-wag posture. And then I thought this was really clever. They tried this both with normal video of a dog wagging its tail and then also just with a black silhouette of the wagging dog on a white background to eliminate other possible cues from the dog, like eyes or facial expressions. And they discovered this didn't really make a difference. The silhouette wasn't, wasn't a big difference from looking at regular video of the dog. And so the researchers measured the dog's heart rate and then just observed their behavior as they watched the different wags. 
And the results were that there wasn't really a difference between how dogs reacted to the right wag and the static control. But when they saw a left wag, the dogs started showing elevated heart rates, as if they were now experiencing stress or anxiety. And the behavioral observation also showed that the dogs exhibited more behaviors associated with stress when they saw the left wag. Uh, curiously, both the left wag and the static control were more stressful than the right wag, according to this observation metric. So a dog sees another dog with the right wag. That's cool. Dog sees a dog that isn't wagging at all. It seems like the dog might be getting some stress reaction there, maybe because it can't figure out what to make of this dog if it's mm-hmm. not wagging at all. Dog sees a dog with a left wag. That's definitely a stress reaction. Something's going on here. Okay. And this is definitely the kind of thing that a human could pick up on too right this like the, the, it's not so uh slight a movement that we wouldn't be able to see it no no no. i mean they were able to measure it with video okay yeah uh, but i wasn't sure if that meant that you had to like you know slow it down and all right let's zoom in on the tail and see to what degree it's actually moving hmm. but no this is something you, we would be able to observe say at your local dog park yeah from everything i could okay. tell i think i mean you'd have to pay close attention mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe the dog park might be too distracting a location to try this out. Yeah, and so they didn't want to draw too many conclusions about exactly what this means about the dog's uh, emotions. I I, I might have gone a little too far if I said it it was definitely stress a minute ago, because what they could look at was these these external behaviors and then elevated heart rate. Mm -hmm. So that could mean any number of things, but at least when a dog sees another dog wagging left, it it's having some kind of elevated response. So in this way, dogs do communicate something very relevant about their state of mind with a wag, and they can see it in other dogs. And that makes me think some interesting questions about the nature of communication. Like, in a very different way, the idea of communication by tail could also apply to something like a rattlesnake. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the rattlesnake is definitely communicating with its tail. Yeah. It is saying... Don't get near me. I'm a rattlesnake. Yeah. And so what do the dog and the rattlesnake have in common? If we assume dogs inadvertently communicate information with tail wags, and I mean inadvertently here, I'm talking about the fact that the evolutionary purpose of the right or left side bias isn't necessarily to share information with others. It might simply be a totally accidental byproduct of this brain lateralization they're talking about. You know what I mean? Like the WAG Mm -hmm. might not be an adaptation that was selected for because it shared information. It might be an accident. Okay. But it's an accident that does share information, and now they've learned how to make something of that. So in what sense could we say that this is communication if it's just an accidental byproduct that we've learned how to draw information from? And to what extent does communication have to be deliberate? Yeah, I mean, that kind of underlies the complexity of of communication in general, you know, this mix of deliberate and uh, accidental cues and then uh, and miscues Mm. (laughs) that we have to make sense of. Yeah, it makes me wonder about the origins of human language. I know that's not exactly the subject today, but just like, could human, could something like human language have come from originally, I don't know, incidental vocalizations that were not intended to communicate information, Mm -hmm. but they did, and then that could develop into something where we harness that for deliberate use? Yeah, it could all begin with just a simple, you know, scream. 
yeah. <laughs> when you're scared, you know, and then the, the various nuances involved in in uh, in how we interpret that scream. Now, here's another topic related to tales that I think you've done a whole episode on before, which is when you pick up a blue tail lizard, mm-hmm. uh, you catch it, say, in a shoebox, and then its tail comes off, and the children start screaming. Yes. What's going on there? Well, this uh, brings us into the area of autotomy, uh, as it's uh, referred. This is the the shedding of of a tail. Not a you know the the animal's not chewing the tail off. It's not pulling the tail off. It's just simply detaching it. Not a mouse in a glue trap situation here. Just a straight up shedding of the tail. And indeed. Lizards, uh, geckos, skinks. Uh, this is where you you see most of the the examples of caudal autonomy, uh, caudals and related to the the tail. And certainly there is a there's a whole episode of stuff to blow your mind that goes into uh, this in a lot more detail and, and draws from specific studies. Uh, but for our purposes here, I just wanted to go over uh, in brief uh, what's occurring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned blue-tailed skinks. Uh, Skilton skink, which is a blue-tailed skink, is a, is a perfect example of autotomy because the tail is bright blue, so it just adds to the attractiveness of this, what is essentially thought of as a predator bribe. Oh, so, okay. So like a cat sees a lizard and says, I'm going to eat that lizard, and the lizard well, says, it, Whoop. it might not eat it yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly there's a whole... The, the, uh, the, I'm going to torture of, that lizard. Yeah, the game of cat uh, predation is, uh, is rather complicated. Uh, and cruel. But uh, essentially the lizard's reaction is, look, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave a little of me behind. Uh, first of all, it has fat in it. It's part of me. You can eat it and you will get a meal out of it. I'm going to leave you a meal uh, that's ah. going to be easier to catch and put up less of a fight. But it's also thrashing around as if it's alive. It's also bright blue, so it's easier to see. So it really is, in a sense, a bribe. It's not just a decoy. It's not just something that the cat gets nothing out of. You could eat the tail and get some nutrition. Yeah, it's like the, uh, you know, if you have some sort of like a bank heist movie where, um, I've seen this pop up in, in, in various stories before where the, the, the anti-heroes or the heroes have made off with the loot. The, somebody, the law enforcement is chasing them, then you have to say, how much money would I have to drop out of the back of this truck where they would stop? Like they would actually pick up uh, some of the loot and make off on their own or, you know, be satisfied with it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of the gamble that the lizard is making. Uh, another example of this kind of behavior, uh, and this isn't 100% certain, but there are arguments that a vulture vomits when threatened. As a, as a as a form of bribery as well, just saying you oh. can eat me, I'm going to put up a fight, or I could just barf up some food here and you can eat that because delicious. As we all know, I mean, particularly dogs, uh, many animals, they're they're not going to be too picky about their food if it's just because it's been in the belly of a vulture. Eh, it doesn't mean it can't be eaten. Fascinating. Now there's a. Um, there's another theory uh, uh, about uh, lizard um, autotomy, uh, and this one comes to us from a 2009 University of Michigan study of lizards in Greece that concluded that the lizards there dropped their tails when bitten on the tail by venomous snakes. Wow. Yeah. So it's the same How do logic. They know? I, it's they or maybe they don't know. I mean, maybe it's not mm-hmm. a brain response, but there's some kind of automated response. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it matches up rather nicely with our uh, you know our zombie uh, fiction, where someone's bit by a zombie you know in The Walking Dead, and then you have to saw that limb off so that the uh, uh, so that the, the zombie juice won't seep in and affect the whole organism. But the great thing about that in the zombie story is you never really know if it's going to work. Yeah, it's true. Well, you, it's, you don't have settled zombie science, do you? It seems like it always does. Like. 
it, there seems to be a silent rule of zombie uh, fiction that if you go and actually do the grueling, hard-to-watch uh, limb amputation scene, then that character has to survive. You know, I think I've encountered it in ways that say it buys you some time, but okay. it doesn't completely solve the problem. Okay. Maybe you've got a, sl- a smaller concentration of, of zombie juice in your blood <laughs> then. Um, so science, scientists, um, you know, to, to go back to the, the cat example, like scientists have long thought that tail shedding is an issue of predator pressure. But uh, and, and so this would mean that the more predators there are for a species in a given area, the greater the need for an effective defense mechanism. So tail dropping explodes in uh, in any area of high lizard uh, predator pressure. But this uh, 2009 study, um, uh, you know, argues that the lizards of the offshore Aegean Sea islands examined in the study, um, in these cases, it all comes down to an evolutionary reaction to their single most pressing predator, in this case, the viper. So these are specialized lizard predators, and so you see an emergence of a, of a specialized uh, uh, anti-predator uh, defense. Now, I wonder how this adaptation affects the viper hunting strategy. Indeed, yeah, because any of these uh, these scenarios, it's, uh, you know, it's an arms race uh, with one side trying to keep up with the other. Certainly. So here's a question. I've never found out. Can they grow it back? They can grow it back, but it's not. The best way to think of it is it's not a full-size spare. You'll grow back a tail that is uh, less functional, you know, but mm-hmm. but also a tail that can be uh, can also be dropped again. So when they drop the tail, uh, the, the muscles uh, that encircle uh, this particular plane of the, uh, the creature's uh, uh, body, they constrict a kind of natural tourniquet to, uh, to keep the you know, blood from, uh, from bleeding out. And then immediately after this, the, the skin also contracts around the end of the, of the tail, forming a stub. That's and then it crazy. grows out from there. In these little lizards that are everywhere, that's, that's science fiction. Yeah. It's got a natural tourniquet. Yeah, and if you're wondering how it even... Um, severs it to begin with. There have been some cool studies into this. They point out that uh, that, that uh, tail autonomy occurs at um, preformed horizontal fracture points. So essentially, um, it's a fracture plane across the vertebra um, or the, uh, the the intervertebral, and uh, the lizard assists the um, the autotomy by con- by contracting the muscles around that fracture plane. And here, the structural integrity of the tail uh, and its connection to the rest of the body is maintained by uh, the adhesion force of integrated muscles, complete with microstructures that mushroom out when it's time to release the tail. Oh man. Now it's of course it's interesting when you start thinking about the costs here. You know the cost of that bribe yeah. that you're making, or the cost of losing that limb to the zombie or the or the viper. Well, it's a it's a calculated risk because it sounds like losing the tail isn't going to hurt the lizard, except that it's just admitting defeat on a certain front. It's saying, okay, I've put a certain number of resources into this tail. I'm going to have to give it up. Yeah, it's letting it's letting the bad money go down the drain. Yeah, the bad money's gone down the drain, and then what do you do when another cat shows up? That's a, it's a wonderful trick, but once you've uh, you've used it, you've got to regrow that tail to get to the point where you can drop it again. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting strategy and, and indeed a gamble, but one that's been paying off for them because it's uh, it remains a, a staple of of a number of different uh, reptiles. Does anything other than a lizard drop its tail? Yes, and that brings us back to the scorpion. Um, uh, there, 
there are uh, there are a few rare South American scorpions uh, of the Anateris uh, genus who also practice uh, caudal autotomy. And when they lose their tails, first of all, they lose it for good. There's no growing the tail back in this no. case. Uh, they have they just drop it and it's gone. But also, if they lose their tail, they lose their anus. And that's because the scorpion's anus is located at the end of the tail. The gut. You lie. No. The really? gut extends through the tail and opens up at the back of the fifth segment, just ahead of the stinger segment. Um, and this really draws, you know, we we're talking about what's the difference between tails, what are tails. Like this is a drastically different tail structure than you find in other creatures because yeah. The, the, the gut extends back there. I mean, the, the, the anus is at the almost the end of the tail. That's crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine if you had an appendage that you pooped out of? Yeah. Like if you could, if you could reach into a hole and then poop in the hole. It would, it would totally change our bathroom uh, behavior. That's for sure. <laughs> now you're probably wondering what happens to the scorpion when it's lost its tail and it's lost its anus, uh, f- fleeing from a, a predator. Well, it essentially cannot poop again for the rest of its life, so it ends up just inflating like a fecal balloon until it dies. That's a nightmare. Yeah, but hey, it's a living nightmare as opposed to just dying. So I mean, that's the <laughs> the hard truth of survival, right there. And when you've got when you've got pinching claws like a scorpion, what else really matters? Yeah, you still have your claw. I like the, the pinch the world. The creature is still functional, as we pointed out in the last episode. Um, uh, a scorpion doesn't even use its tail uh, when it's dealing with the smaller, easier-to-handle prey. So, right. You so know. you can keep stuffing yourself with things that you cannot poop ever. Right. It's yeah, it's not game over. It just means you can't sting and you can't poop. But life goes on. Life uh, finds a way. Yes. You know, one one more thing about autotomy that I thought was interesting is that it reminds me of certain mythological tales in, in these mythical creatures. You know, there are tons of mythical creatures that are amalgamations of different kinds of animals. Mm-hmm. So they've got the head of a lion and the wings of an eagle and the beak of a squid or something. But there are some animals that have tails that are snake tails, but they're not just snake tails as in the tail of a snake, like mm-hmm. a snake's tail. But they have a tail that is a snake, as oh. in the front half of a snake, a snake with a head. I know I've seen this mentioned in at least some versions of the, the Cerberus or Kerberos myth, uh, the Chimera, and I think the, the Nue creature. Mm-hmm. All seem to have, at least in some versions that I've seen mentioned, a tails that aren't just snake tails, but are snakes. And I don't know, that, that seems like an interesting parallel to the idea of, of, tails that can become separated and then sort of have a life of their own like they some of these tails that they get cut off keep wiggling right yeah and I, and I wonder if uh, stories like this could have been inspired by seeing tails that that can separate and continue to live like is that a snake or a worm now huh well you know and it also would seem in such a creature that it would make sense to have a tail that resembles a snake for either defensive or predatory purposes. Oh, certainly. Yeah, it reminds me of a particular, there's a particular snake, and I apologize for not having the details. It's in a, I did a, a Monster of the Week post about uh, Cthulhu as Cthulhu appears in uh, a particular movie from the 90s. And uh, and in that, I talk about a, a, a type of snake where its tail is used uh, to lure in other creatures. And the tail, uh, I believe, is supposed to look uh, a little bit like uh, a little bit like feathers, I believe. 
So there are cases where the tail is used as a, as a decoy to uh, to lure something in. Huh. Well, I think it's time to talk about Homo sapiens, Robert. Yes, yes. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about the human tail. So, the big question, where's the human tail? Exactly. It's been gone for a long time. Obviously. We're angry. Yeah. We want our tails. We, you know, as, as individuals who were not born with them, we, you know, we wonder, like, where where are they? Or do we have ancestors that once had tails? Um, because apart from from apes, um, and then that's the main area. Us and our fellow great ape kin, we have no tails. Yeah, but right. you can look at other mammals. So obviously, our vertebrate ancestors, we believe, had tails. Mm-hmm. But there are other mammals that have adapted to not have tails anymore, right? Right. There are moles, hedgehogs, guinea pigs, hamsters, bears, bats, koalas, sloths, agoutis, uh, and a handful of other creatures. But uh, but we are the, the the larger primates are certainly the the most outstanding examples, right? So, yeah, we're part of the, the great apes family. When did the apes lose their tails? Well, it seems like this happened around 20 million years ago. Uh, fossil evidence points to Proconsul, uh, an early fossil ape from about 18 to 20 million years ago, uh, located eastern Africa, areas including Kenya and Uganda. And in this particular species, based on the fossil evidence, again, we see uh, a mixture of old world monkey and ape characteristics. Uh, and it's one of the, if not the first ape species that we see uh, without a tail, based, again, on what the bones tell us. Now, it still raises the question, though, all right, so 20 million years ago, that's the timeline, but why? Right, so if tails are useful, why don't we have them anymore? Mm-hmm. And I think this draws on a, a principle of evolution that, that we often see, which is that over time, if you're not making use of something, you'll lose it. Right. If you don't need it, it'll go away. It might take some time to go away, but eventually it'll go away. Yeah, it's just the basic... Uh economics of evolution you know things like all these features that you have it's like explaining it to a child right all these Mm -hmm. fancy features we have in the house these are extra and if we're not using that light bulb then uh and and that lamp we need to turn it off yeah then that's kind of just the the natural way that the that forms constrict and grow over time but uh what are some major hypotheses about why apes lost their tails like why did they become useless well i was reading about this in richard Richard dawkins uh the ancestor's tale and that's t-a-l-e by the way yeah it's not all about tails uh (laughs) but he he points out that this is largely an under-addressed topic in evolutionary biology. But there, uh, there are a couple of theories that he discusses. One is the hopeful monster theory, as he refers oh, to I like the name of that. Yeah. And this uh, this has to do with just sort of random mutation. He points out that, uh, that Manx cats have a single gene that makes them tailless. These are the cats that don't have tails. Right. Tailless cats. And it all comes down to, again, just a single gene. And it's also homozygous, meaning that it's lethal if present twice. So it's unlikely to spread through evolution. But the idea here is that perhaps some form of Manx monkey, some sort of random tailless monkey, uh, was an exception to the rule, and this random mutation just became the norm. Huh. Not a very exciting theory, but he lays it out as sort of a, you know, a distant possibility here. The, so it's just sort of an accident amplified, right? the The better theory, uh, the the more uh, the one with more weight to it here is the biped theory, and this is that uh, uh, that many tailed primates are occasional bipeds, uh, and when something like a spider monkey walks on all fours, 
the tail gets in the way. Huh. So it can be surmised that tree-active uh, gibbons have no tails because they project themselves to other branches from a vertical hanging position rather than uh, the monkey's horizontal leaping posture. For the gibbon, the tail would be a drag rather than a steadying rudder. This sort of goes back to what I was talking about in the previous episode when you see all these New World monkeys with their prehensile tails. Um, you you often see them in these thickly forested right. environments where they're they're swinging from trees and they're using the tails in in climbing situations. The more bipedal you get, it seems like the less need you really have for a tail. Right. It's also worth noting that that large vegetarian, for the most part, land based apes perhaps had increasingly little use for either fast attacks or speedy retreats from predators, you know, which in, in which case the, the tail would be handy and shooting up into the, the, the trees, etc. Yeah. And as such, many of the primary tail uses were lost to them. Again, it's just the, the economics of evolution. You can also factor communication into this because if we're using, uh, we're, we're, we're depending more on vocalization, then maybe there's less need for that communication uh, uh, device that we call a tail. Yeah, if you can say words, you don't need the dog's right-wag, left-wag signal. Yeah, it's really, the interesting thing about this topic is, like all these different animal examples we've brought up, we kind of had to go through all those to even address this still unanswered question of where the tail went, because you have to think about not only what a tail does in you know for one species, but what a tail can do across the board to end up uh, with some sort of answer for why we don't have one at all. Yeah. Now this is funny because we're saying we don't have tails, which is true, mm-hmm. but in a certain way that's not exactly true. That's right. Because we do have tail bones. We do, and um, it, it's just kind of a you know, it's a vestigial um, uh, part of our vertebrae, just sort of coiled up there. Uh, you know, inside our butts, essentially. Uh, and it's also uh, why it hurts so much if you fall, uh, particularly if you fall into the small of your back or directly under your butt, say, while you're, um, you know, uh, skating or something, mm-hmm. uh, because there's there's not enough padding for the cossacks back there. Now, as we mentioned, uh, either at the beginning of this episode or perhaps at the beginning of the, the first tail episode, um, tails are hard-coded into us enough that they remain a part of our embryonic development. Right. So if you watch an embryo develop in the womb, you'll, you can see stages where it gets a tail mm-hmm. and then it loses the tail again. Yeah. And we've all seen comparisons between, say, uh, a killer whale embryo and a human embryo and how close they are, right? Right. Because essentially you have this sort of uh, you know, vague uh, mammalian embryo that mm-hmm. then develops more and more until it looks more and more human or more and more like a killer whale. Right. Uh, during the fifth and sixth week, weeks of life, the human embryo has a tail with 10 to 12 vertebrae, and it's by eight weeks that it, dis- that it disappears completely. You just suck it back in. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's kind of like it comes out factory, uh, the, the, the factory model has the tail and then you lose it. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've definitely read about cases where tails have reappeared in babies born in the in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. We get into the the case of um, of atavism. Atavism. Uh, this uh, refers to traits of distant ancestors that reappear in modern day. And uh, the the most pressing example of this is the tail, probably because it, it it just resonates more culturally. It's like the idea of like a, a human with a tail. Are they really a human? What's happening here? You know, the fear that we're more bestial than uh, than enlightened human. Right, and I guess there are a couple of types of of tails you could be born with. Right, that's right. There's a, a pseudo tail and the much rarer 
quote-unquote true human tail. Uh, the pseudo tail doesn't have any bones or, or cartilage. It's just skin and fat, and uh, as such, it's, it's easily removed. Uh, pseudo tails, they, ha- they just have a superficial resemblance to true tails. Uh, there are also uh, a number of growths or cysts that can form right at the tip of the tailbone. Some of the more um, you know, unpleasant options are actually large tumors, elongations, uh, elongations of uh, existing vertebrae. Uh, and then also in cases of parasitic twins, there's also can be some tissue uh, that, uh, that, uh, that forms back there. So your lost twin could be a tail. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then there uh, are the true tales, uh, but the human true tale is, uh, is this kind of a controversial subject. I mean, a little bit. I've seen it written about uh, as if it's more controversial, but then in some sources are more firm on the matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it has nerves and muscles, and sometimes, according to some, you'll find cartilage, cartilage and vertebrae. Uh, According to the 2012 paper, Spectrum of Human Tales, a report of six cases, they indicate that uh, bones, cartilage, uh, notochord, and spinal cord are lacking in even a true tail. As such, a true tail is easily uh, removed surgically without uh, residual effects, and it's uh, only, you know, rarely is it some sort of a family trait. There's only one case in, uh, in you know, in recent history uh, where we where it's been reported that there are actually vertebra in the human tail. So, by and large, even a quote-unquote true tail in a human is not an extension of the vertebrae. So it's worth keeping in mind. And and as such, it's it's easily removed. So in most cases, this would not be something that an individual would carry around with them, assuming they had adequate access to medical care. So we still can't say 100% for sure why we lost the tail. Um, There's some, you know, convincing theories here, convincing arguments. I mean, essentially, we lost it because we did not need it anymore. But that, of course, leads us to the question of, are we ever going to get tails again? Right. I mean, just would, because would we're not we using them re, now. Re, re-evolve to get them back. Yeah. I mean, in a way, if we still have the genetic blueprints somewhere in our DNA about how to make a tail, and instead we're just saying, no, don't do that anymore, mm-hmm. oh, what if we reverse that process and said, no, by all means, build it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, the uh, to, to go back to the Hyperion uh, reference that I made earlier, um, an orbital environment, a low-gravity environment, uh, seems like that would be a, a prime example of a case where humans might potentially evolve that tail, right? But you don't have to imagine space travel to think that humans might get tails again. That's right. Uh, we can find uh, discussions of human tales and sort of transhuman tales uh, in the works of Charles Fourier, a uh, French philosopher. He lived uh, 1772 through 1837. Uh, also an influential early socialist thinker who had a rather substantial impact on utopian thinking, particularly in the utopian societies of the mid-1800s. You know, this guy, when I was reading about him, he gave me some very... S- Familiar vibes. Oh, and I yeah. realized he, he was exciting the same strange uh, chords in my brain that I got from reading about John Murray Spear in our techno religion episode. Indeed, yeah, they have similar time frame, as similar sort of futurist visions going on. Right? Yeah, strange futurist utopia. The people at the time thought was very un- unsettling. Yeah, I mean, uh, and this is a guy who he presented a number of ideas that were potentially unsettling to people, uh, both in a realistic and in a fantastic uh, frame. But also popular to some people, yeah. right? Yeah, because he was advocating change, and he advocated a, 
a utopian vision for humanity. He proposed radical advancements in human culture, advancements that would change man and his universe. So as humans exist at the center of Fourier's universe, elevating ourselves uh, to a state of harmony uh, causes the universe to follow suit. Like we're the, we're very much, again, the center of this universe. We're the spoke on this wheel. And if we elevate ourselves, we literally change everything else. So along the same lines as John Murray Spear, he didn't just have in mind making a better society, like improving the rules that govern how humans interact, but truly making a better human being. Yeah, a better human being and just, and like just a better world that would like literally, like he proposed an age uh, in which the poles will have warmed and re- been rendered fertile by a new aurora borealis, in which wild animal, like so, so utopian is this vision. Wild animals will will be succeeded by their antidotes, such as anti lions and anti sharks instead of, instead of sharks and lions. <laughs> like that's the level of harmony this guy was talking about. Uh, we also, we would. Uh, We'd grow to a height of seven feet tall, and we would uh, live to be about 144 years old on average. Man, if we're seven feet tall, the anti-lions aren't going to stand a chance against us. Uh, I mean, they're just living amongst us, I guess. You know, dogs and cats uh, living together. But he also... The anti-lion will lay down with the (laughs) anti-lamb. Yeah. Um, But, you know, he also apparently thought that we might have tails, too. And this is an area... (laughs) That um, it becomes kind of controversial in his history because his critics love to focus on it. Uh, and you would see poli- in political cartoons, essentially, in which you would see Fourier himself with a tail and that tail terminating in an eyeball. It's a tail with an eyeball. Yes. Yeah. That's so good. Cause, cause That's like not, a yeah. D&D monster. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess you could look around corners and stuff and, uh, you know, there. Uh, I mean, really, what... Just you could list a thousand uses for a tail with an eyeball. You know, though we we talked in our grizzly bears from outer space episode about why we think having an eye at the end of an appendage is not necessarily the best idea because it it's not right next to your brain and it can become injured by a bodily injury. Yeah, it's not a good place to stow an eyeball. I mean, unless you had you know sufficient uh, covering, some sort of a sheath that goes over it. But maybe Fourier didn't didn't really think about that. Yeah, there. So you see two different sides to this. So, again, his critics are using this to say, this is a ridiculous, fantastic idea. This guy's a nut job. And so at least after 1840, and again, that's after his death, but but uh, his followers are still carrying his ideas and, and holding them up high. Um, around this time, his uh, his followers begin to sort of chime in and say, no, he wasn't actually saying humans would have tails. It's a little more complicated than that. And it, it seems... The more you, the closer you look at it, like it's a little column A and a little column B. Like he's essentially saying humans will have tails, but it does involve a a richer, more elaborate mythos. Okay. So, um, according to uh, the book Selections from the Works of Fourier, uh, Fourier uh, claims that he claimed that he was referring to the extraterrestrial Solarians. Oh, yeah, okay. Who, now it all makes who, sense. Who quote must be endowed with brilliant faculties denied to us humans. So essentially gifts that uh, God knew we weren't ready for, such as an amazing tale. 
So these uh, Solarians factored into Fourier's greater metaphysics, uh, uh, in which uh, so-called Harmonians, which are these sort of elevated humans who've who've come to terms with peace on Earth and utopian existence, uh, they en- they enjoy multiple lives on on Earth in addition to extraterrestrial lives beyond our planet, in which they'd benefit from these various physical gifts. Okay. So Fourier wrote, I have remarked that this superiority is due principally to a member of which we are deprived and which comprehends the following properties. Protection and falling, powerful weapon, splendid ornament, gigantic strength, infinite dexterity, cooperation and support in all the bodily motions. In discussing this problem, journalists devoid of imagination say that the Solarians resemble the demons of the farce of St. Anthony, equipped with horns, proboscis, claws, and tails, and that I wish to create men like this upon our globe. Oh, so you're putting Fourier in kind of a uh, Anton Jessup vein. Yeah, I guess. I'm kind of following into that, <laughs> that a bit. I mean, you know, the man, man, that's wild. That's yeah. wonderful. But he, he makes some good points, right? You know, we would, we might be better off if we had splendid ornament, gigantic strength, uh, powerful weapon. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that he's referring to many of the things we've discussed here yeah. in this episode. You know, the, all these strengths that the tail has for other organisms, so why not us? Uh, and it's, you know, it's a false argument he's making. He's, he's saying right. we'd be better off with these, these things, these things that we evidently did not need uh-huh. to uh, to ascend to this level uh, of our evolution. Again, his followers tended to downplay uh, this, but according to <laughs> Charles Fourier, The Visionary and His World by Jonathan Beecher, uh, Fourier certainly did write uh, of human tales, and in these ri- and these writings were censored you know, later on. Quote, The Harmonian Arm, or Archibus, is a vertebral tale, a tale of immense length, and with 144 vertebrae. This member is as redoubtable as it is industrious. It is a natural weapon. The arquebus terminates with a very small elongated hand, a hand as strong as the claws of an eagle or a crab. (laughs) When a man is swimming, the arquebus will help him move as fast as a fish. It can stretch to the bottom of the water, carrying fish nets and making them fast. With its help, a man can reach a branch 12 feet high, climb up and down the tree, pick fruit at the very top of the tree, and put it in a basket tied to the archimon. It serves as a whip and a rein to a man who is driving a horse-drawn plow. It can be used to tame a wild horse. The rider can tie up the horse's legs with his arquebus. It is infinitely useful, and in the playing of musical instruments, it doubles a person's manual faculties, since its fingers, although very small, are extremely stretchable. Hey, we were talking about that earlier. We were. Playing music. This guy was uh, was ahead of ahead of us. He's anticipated like every uh, single thing we said in this episode. <laughs> but yeah, so he's talking about a prehensile tail that can can do all of the things we would expect in an arm or a limb, except it's even better. Yeah, and we would use it to do all these utopian things like climbing trees and being a wild horse, which seems I, kind of <laughs> counter to the whole Harmonian thing, so, right? I think it's kind of funny that one of the advantages he lists is that it can stretch to the bottom of the water carrying fishnets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, it's kind it's of a different time, I guess. Yeah. Again, I guess it's kind of like an etern- return to Eden sort of vibe to this, right? Is that we would, in, in, in a sense, we would be we would be returning to our like pre-ape existence only mm-hmm. with presumably a utopian human intellect. You know, wait, hold on. So, did Fourier have an idea about why humans did not have this amazing archibros? 
already? Uh, I, I believe it's because we sucked. Because we, <laughs> and and again, people who are more um, familiar with Fourier's uh, work can can write in and uh, and flesh this out for us a bit. But my understanding, based on the sources I was looking at, is that it's essentially humans have a dystopian existence, and therefore. Have are, are not are not privy to these gifts because these gifts would be squandered on war and violence and horror. Uh, yeah, and it's only if it's we true. If I had ourselves. a tail, I would only use it for war. You would. You just go and like pick bar fights and just start tail slapping uh, fools left and right. It's the it's the xenomorph tail again. It is. Yeah. So yeah, if humans had tails, they would essentially be xenomorphs, and we see that. I mean, look at all you know, all of our fictional creatures that have tails. They're often using them as weapons, anyway. That's that's our fantasy. That's our dystopian fantasy for for tail usage. Fourier thought differently, though. He saw the utopian dream here. I can respect that. <laughs> you know, it also uh, uh, brings to mind the uh, 2009 novel, The Sacred Book of the Werewolf, a novel by. Uh, Russian author Victor uh, Pelvin. Uh, are you familiar with this work? No, not at all. It's an interesting book. It's um, it sounds like it's going to be sort of a uh, you know underworld type of thing, yeah. but it's, it's actually a very uh, very literate uh, little work that uh, speaks to the uh, to, to the heart of um, sort of the Russian soul at the time. Now, wait a minute. This isn't related to that. Uh, to that werewolf spy novel you found at the beach that you were telling me about. No, no, no. That's that's a different. That's a far trashier um, uh, book. <laughs> this one, this one has more of a literary uh, slant, but it does at the heart concern a, a love story between a an ex KGB werewolf and a <laughs> and a two thousand year old werefox. Whoa. Um, and the, the werefox uh, in particular, uh, she's capable of greater yogic powers since she has additional chakras in her tail. Uh, chakras are, of course, are those energy points in uh, in Eastern uh, metaphysics, um, you know, that that go up and down your vertebra. So, if you had more vertebra, you would have more chakras. So, like a, a very long snake would have tons of chakras. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, by that respect, uh, you know, many of the animals here. What would us? What would us? I mean, even though a scorpion doesn't have vertebrae, uh, what would its chakras be like? I don't know. If it were, it's of course a, a scorpion is a very uh, non-yogic uh, creature. It's a very, uh, yeah. it's a very self-centered and spiteful uh, <laughs> organism. So I can't imagine it <laughs> engaging in a lot of meditation. Okay, so to finally revisit the question one more time: Will humans ever evolve tails again? Will we get them back? My feeling is, if I'm gonna Stop messing around and say what I really think. I pro- don't don't really think so because why would that happen? It seems like there'd either have to be uh, a selection pressure mm-hmm. in favor of it, like th- that people who had them would be more likely to have more children. I don't see why that would be, given our level of technology and our you know civilized technological existence. It just doesn't seem like the strong you know, survival or reproduction preference for a tail would reemerge. Mm-hmm. But maybe we could get them back just through genetic engineering. You yeah, if we just really wanted them bad enough, then we could genetically engineer them or potentially... Uh, Don't know why we'd want that. But. Surgically uh, augment ourselves to create tails. Sure. But, uh, but even then, that's... Yeah, the genetic would be the only way that we would be altering the species as opposed to individual members of that species. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed, it's been so long since apes lost that tail. You know, 20 million years. By the time something post-human 
evolved a tail, like that would not be a human anymore. That would not be Homo sapiens. That would be something else. That's a great point. So there's that. <laughs> but we'd love to hear from everyone else. Uh, what, what do you think? Will humans ever develop a, a tail? Will we ever evolve a tail? And uh, to go back to the question at the very beginning of this uh, this two-parter, would you choose wings or would you choose a tail? Which one would you acquire? And then I how would, would you use it? I would probably say neither. Neither? Neither wasn't a choice. <laughs> you had to choose wings or tail. Oh, uh, well, then I'll go with the xenomorph tail because you never know when you're going to need it. You never know. All right, so there you have it. Uh, tales, uh, you know, if you didn't listen to that first, uh, the first part of this, uh, go back and listen to it. There are a lot of great tale, uh, uh, examples in that episode as well. And you can find all the episodes of the podcast at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. You'll also find blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you'd like to let us know whether you'd rather have wings or a tail, g- given all of the, uh, qualifications we offered at the beginning of the first episode, or if you'd like to let us know an interesting tale fact or give us feedback on any of the stuff we talked about in this episode, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.